First John chapter 2 verse 3 tonight is where we're going to begin. First John chapter 2 verse 3. John was, I believe, the closest to Jesus Christ of anyone else on earth. I base that on several things, a couple of them being he would always sit closest to Christ. He was a disciple that leaned upon Jesus' chest at the Last Supper. He was the only disciple who was there at the cross while Jesus was crucified. And Jesus even said to him, I want you, John, out of everyone to take care of my mother after I'm gone. There was a closeness there. And, and John wrote this letter to speak to our hearts and to our minds about how to have fellowship with God. He wrote the Gospel of John to tell people how to have a relationship with God. But he writes this book telling us how to have fellowship with God. And we saw last week there's a difference between relationship and fellowship. Fellowship is all about being on the same page. Being, being together, being of the same mind, of, of walking through life together. That's what fellowship, it's partnership, it's, it's commonality. And, and you and I can have a relationship with God and not be in fellowship with God. Just like we can have a relationship with human beings and not be in fellowship with them. We might not be on the same page, seeing things the same way. And so John wrote this book primarily to Christians. To those of us who say, hey, I already have a relationship with God. I want to know what it's like to lock arms in arms with God, to walk every step through this life with God, and know that God and I are on the same page. Because John said that's how we really experience the fullness of joy on this side of heaven. That, that's as good as it gets. That, that you and I can, can face everything that life brings. The good things can only be better with God invited in and the struggles and trials we go through. Again, we can get through them knowing that we never go through them alone. We go through them with God. So it's important that we learn to walk through life in fellowship with God. And we saw last week that a couple of the prerequisites for that is honesty and humility before God. Just to be honest before God about our, our failures and our sin and all of that. And not to play games with God. Be transparent. Be real. And, and, and just to be humble. And not be so full of pride. That, that's a way that you and I stay on the same page with God. Tonight we're going to see, first of all, that another way that we do that is just through our obedience. Notice what John writes in 1 John chapter 2, verses 3 through 6. Now by this we know that we have come to know God if we keep His commandments. The one who says, I have come to know God and yet does not keep His commandments is a liar and the truth is not in such a person. But whoever obeys His word, truly in this person the love of God has been perfected. By this we know that we are in Him. The one who says He resides in God ought Himself to walk just as Jesus walked. Obedience. God calls us to obedience. But notice here in this passage, he, he makes some important points. He says, for us, as children of God, our obedience should be based on knowledge and motivated by love. Based on knowledge. Notice that's why he starts out in verse 3. By this we know that we have come to know God if we keep His commandments. And then in verse 4, the one who says, I've come to know God yet does not. Because what he's simply saying is, just like we would do in some ways in a human relationship, if I truly get to know this person, 
then I know that they've got my best interest at heart. They've got my back. They truly love me. They truly care. They're not going to say something to steer me wrong. And how much more can we multiply that up to God? And, and what the Bible is saying, what God is calling us to is a deeper fellowship with Him because He's simply saying, the more you get to know me, the more you know my character, the more you know how much I really love you, then you're going to know that every command that I give you is only because I love you and it's only for your own best interest that God is not some cosmic killjoy up there trying to keep us from having fun in life. That if He tells us not to do something or to do something, it's only because He's saying that's how you experience life at the highest level. That's how you truly go through life full of joy. That's the way. Obedience to His commands. And so He's simply saying, come know me. Know me. Get to know me more and more through my word. Because the more you know about God, the more you and I will look at his commands, not as something that's like, oh man, I, you know, I don't want to do that. They're, they're a weight. They're a burden. No, in fact, John says in 1 John 5, 3, that we will come to know that his commands are not weighty at all. They're not burdensome at all. In fact, it goes even back to the whole motivated by love to obey. Not just that my obedience is founded upon a growing knowledge of God, knowing that He really does have my best interest at heart, and everything He's telling me to do or telling me to avoid is only so that I can experience life at the very highest level. But then He says in verse 5, this is how we truly know that our love for God is being perfected. That, that we truly sort of flesh out how much we love God. Because, let's face it, there's three reasons to obey i can obey because i have to i can obey because i need to or i can obey because i want to i mean a slave obeys because they have to if they don't man they're going to get punished we as employees we may need to go to work and we may need to do some things that we don't necessarily we're not thrilled about but we certainly enjoy getting that paycheck weekly or bi-weekly so we do these things because we need to but God says I I want you to walk in fellowship with me to to get to the point where as you obey me you're doing it because you want to because you've truly bought in to the character of God to the will of God for your life to the plan that God has for your life and all of us become convinced that God's way is the best way that God's will cannot be beat we can't do better than God's will for our life nobody else can tell us something that's going to be better than what God has figured out for us because he's our creator He's knit us together in our mother's wombs. He, he knows us better than we know ourselves. He knows a unique set of personality, gifts, talents, traits, and all of that that He has woven together. And when God is calling us to something and, and has a will for our life, it's going to be a perfect fit. It's going to be something that where we find absolute fulfillment and satisfaction if we'll just trust Him and just surrender and lay down our lives and follow Him in fellowship with Him. And that's what John's saying. But notice, John says, back up in verse 4, there's a lot of people who their faith is around their words. And we've already talked about this over in chapter 1. Many times, verse 6, if we say, verse 8, if we say, verse 10, if we say, and now here again in verse 4 of chapter 2, the one who says. And our faith is not based on words. 
our faith is based on action. It's based on reality. It's based on living it out. And God is not calling us to a life of just, yeah, God, I love you. No, he's saying if I truly love God, it will be fleshed out in my obedience. That will be one of the barometers of of my love for God is, am I obedient? Am I following what God is asking me to do? Am I avoiding the things that God is asking me to avoid? That's how I'm showing whether I love God or not. I can say all day long, I'm in love with God. God is first in my life. He's the priority of my life. But John says, no, no, no. It's got to come down to what's my life look like. Am I truly being obedient to God in the way I live? Notice the word keep up there too in verse 3 and then in verse 4. It's a very interesting word. It's actually a military word. It was used to speak of a, of a sentry, of a soldier who was on guard and needed to be absolutely vigilant and alert at all times to stand their post. And John is saying that's the kind of mindset we need in connection with the commands of God. That we need to be vigilant about them. We need to be alert to them. That's why we need to dig into the Word of God and study it and read it so that our mind is saturated with what the commands of God are. So that when the Holy Spirit is working in our life, He can recall those things to our remembrance and we can act on them and we can be vigilant and we can be alert to the way God wants us to move and to go throughout our day, throughout our week, throughout our life. And it also talks to us about how God wants us to be 100% obedient. Not 90% obedient, not 75% obedient. God wants us to be 100% obedient. He's asking for absolute surrender to everything. Saying, just come, follow me. And again, remember though, this obedience is based on a growing knowledge. Because the more I know God, the more I know that I can trust Him whichever way He leads. And then as I grow in fellowship and walk through this life with Him, I also come to love Him so much because He's never steered me wrong. He's always been faithful. He's always had my back. He's always had my best interest at heart that I just want to continue to love Him more by my obedience. And so I'm not obedient because I have to. I'm not obedient because I need to. I'm obedient to God because I want to. God, I want to obey what you're telling me to do. And it stirs up within us and causes us to live in such fellowship. That's why a person who's walking this way with God, there's such a closeness between them and God. That's why it literally feels like we are locking arms with God and we are just taking every step Because we've invited Him into our life. There is not a room in our life that's off limits to God. We're simply, God, I'm just wanting to obey You. In fact, I'm burning to obey You. I want to show You my love. And then out of that, out of an obedience that's based on knowledge, it's motivated by love, guess what one of the great byproducts is? Assurance and reassurance. That's why up in verse 3 he says, Now by this we know that we have come to know God. God not only wants us to know, He wants us to know that we know. There, There are some things in life we know, there are other things we know we know. 
I mean, we, we've just come. They are locked in. They are solid. And God says, when you and I begin to walk in the light with each other, when we begin to walk in fellowship with other, and when you are, are burning to be obedient to me, you will know that you know that you and I are on the same page. You won't have to wake up going, man, I don't know. I think maybe God and I are... Maybe he's over there and, and I've walked away from God. Or there's not going to be any question. You're going to have that assurance. You're going to have that confirmation. You're going to have that peace that passes all understanding that you and God are on the same page. And, and listen, it might be at a time in your life where things are hard, where things are difficult, but God is still giving you his joy and peace because he's telling you at this moment, but child, I'm right there with you. This is, this is what I've chosen for you for now. Let's walk through this together whether it's the burning fiery furnace in the book of Daniel whether it's going out on the battlefield facing a giant like Goliath whether it's walking around a city whose walls are about ready to crumble whatever that looks like in my life God says that's there's nothing better than that and that will bring assurance that's why at the end of verse 5 he repeats that when he says by this we know that we are in him again remember John's not writing about relationship He's assuming that the people he's writing to in 1 John already have a relationship. He's talking about making sure that we're on the same page with God as a Christian. That we're in fellowship with God. That we're in partnership with God. And then in verse 6, the one who says he resides in God ought himself to walk just as Jesus walked. We could spend weeks just expounding on this one verse but just a couple of thoughts tonight first of all jesus is our example he's the ultimate pattern for life in a sense what john is saying is that as i take my steps through life it's just like i just need to look where did jesus step and i just need to step in the footprints of jesus who's went on that road before me that's how i need to live my life and notice he uses the word walk. It is a step-by-step, deliberate, intentional way of living. God wants us to take steps with him. Many times, even as Christians, we want God to show us, God, what's the seventh step you want me to take from here? And most of the time, God says, I'm not interested in showing you what the seventh step is from here. I just want you to obey me and follow me with that next step for life. Just let's go from point A to point B. And then when we get to point B, God says, now I'm going to take you to point C. Just follow me one step. And it's that next step that God wants us to take in obedience to him. It's the way Jesus walked through life when he was here on earth. Let me ask you a question right now. I've asked myself this question many times this week as I was preparing for tonight. What's that next step look like for you? What's that next step that God is wanting you to take? Because notice also implied in the word walk is progression. Making progress. Going towards something. Not an, there, there's no aimlessness in this word walk in the Greek language. It is very intentional. It is that God has a very big purpose and plan. He wants us to go from this step to this step. And He's got a road for us to follow. That's why Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. You just need to follow me. And so what is that next step? Wherever we are right now, 
Maybe, maybe you've even walked away from God and you're not in fellowship with God anymore. Then God is still asking us and urging us to take a step. Maybe it's a step back to Him. But God is saying, what is that next step in our life as we walk as Jesus walked? And one of the things that Jesus did when He walked on earth is lived for the audience of one. All Jesus cared about was doing the will of His Father. We all know that because He didn't please everybody. That's part of the reason why He ended up on a cross. Because He didn't, not everybody liked Him and He was perfect. And He was God. That's the kind of walk that we need to get to. That, that's why we can't go through life trying to please God and pleasing ourselves. Because God says no man can serve two masters. We've got to get to the point where we are just all about pleasing God and walking as Jesus walked for the audience of one saying, God, I'm just living my life and taking every step just to please you because we also know that in trying to please people, that's impossible too. Because people are different and some people are going to say over here, Jeff, Jeff, this, this is what you need to do. And some of the same oh, people over here are going to say, no, 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 Jeff. And so... You, you still can't please everybody. And that's why we need to walk as Jesus walked. Just for an audience of one, God. Doing what pleases God. It may not always please people. And certainly we're not living to please ourselves if we've truly laid down our lives and, and have taken up our cross, as Jesus calls us to as Christians. But that's walking as Jesus walked. Not only is that walking as Jesus walked, but also implied here is, is walking closely with Jesus. Walking close behind Him. Proximity. That closeness should equal likeness. That I should walk close to my Savior. In fact, the rabbis down through the centuries had a phrase that they encouraged their disciples, those that they were teaching, to walk in the dust of their rabbi. That they literally would walk so close behind their rabbi that as the rabbi walked the dusty streets, that the dust would kick up and actually land on their feet. That's how close they were to their rabbi, to their teacher, to their master. How much more to our Savior walking with Jesus so closely. Let me share something with you. Keep your finger there and go back to the Gospel of Luke, to Luke chapter 22. Luke chapter 22. I want you to see a time in Peter's life where not only is there something being pointed out physically, but the physical is also pointing out the spiritual because we can see that by the context. And Luke's, and, and keep your place there in Luke because we're going to come back to Luke in just a couple of minutes again. In Luke chapter 22, verse 54, this is when they've arrested Jesus. Don't miss this. They arrested Jesus, led him away, and brought him into the high priest's house. Don't miss this last part of verse 54. But Peter was following at a distance. Yes, it's talking about physical distance. But in this passage, if you study the context, we certainly understand that the physical distance was also spiritual distance. Because notice what happens next. What does Peter do? This is the passage where Peter denies that he even knows the Lord. I don't know that guy, because he wasn't walking with Jesus. 
He wasn't keeping close to Jesus. He was lagging behind. God was at a distance from him. He wasn't keeping up to where God wanted him to go. And because of that, he got to the point where he said he didn't even know who Jesus was. See, walking as Jesus walked is not just living for the audience of one. It is, again, walking close with Jesus because, again, closeness should equal likeness. That the closer I walk with Jesus throughout my life, arm in arm, locked arm in arm, inviting Him in every step of the way, hopefully the more like Jesus I will become, which is the whole reason why John wrote, we ought to walk just as Jesus walked. Verse 7, back to 1 John. Another way that we abide or remain in fellowship or on the same page with God is not only through our obedience, but through living a life of love. And we need to define love from a biblical perspective because our culture defines love in such skewed ways. Love from a biblical perspective is seeking the highest good of someone else. That's what biblical love is. Seeking the highest good of someone else. So notice in 1 John 2, 7, Dear friends, I am not writing a new commandment to you, but an old commandment which you've had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you've already heard. On the other hand, I'm writing a new commandment to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. The one who says he is in the light but still hates his fellow Christian is still in the darkness. And the one who loves his fellow Christian resides in the light and there is no cause for stumbling in him. But the one who hates his fellow Christian is in the darkness, walks in the darkness, does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. I hope we can get through all this tonight because this is so important. First of all, John is writing about the importance of love like Jesus Love, walking as Jesus walked. And John had to learn how to love. John, when he met Jesus, was not this loving person. In fact, let me give you an illustration of that. Go back to the Gospel of Luke, to Luke chapter 9. And I think this should encourage us because, listen, all of us probably aren't the lovers in the biblical text or in the context that we should be or maybe want to be. But we can make progress in being a better lover, if you will, in loving like Jesus loves us and loves others. Because notice where John was when Jesus first met him. Luke 9, verse 51 Now when the days drew near for him to be taken up, Jesus set out resolutely to go to Jerusalem. He sent messengers on ahead of him. As they went along, they entered a Samaritan village to make things ready in advance for him. But the villagers refused to welcome him because he was determined to go to Jerusalem. Now when his disciples, James and John, that's the guy who wrote 1 John, saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to call fire down from heaven and fry him? Okay, I added fry him, but you get the picture. Same thing. Not a lot of love there, right? Well, Jesus, they've rejected you, so let's just fry him, right? And notice what Jesus does. He rebukes them. See, sometimes when we love somebody, it means telling them what they need to hear, not necessarily what they want to hear. Jesus loved John, but Jesus said, John, you're way off base here. Where's the love in frying these people because they've rejected me? 
you know, maybe somewhere down the road, they will turn to me. Don't be so short. Don't, don't be so impatient. Am I not patient with you? Have you as disciples not broken my heart time after time and I still love you and I haven't kicked you out of my disciple band, have I? Just because you don't do everything right and respond rightly all the time. And so John had a lot to learn about love. So that's why back in 1 John chapter 2, verse 7, he begins to us in this passage about love, talking to us about an old commandment. And basically all John is saying there is, that this whole idea of love is foundational. It is fundamental to us being on the same page with God. It goes all the way back to the very beginning when God said, here's two of the greatest commandments. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. I mean, it's always been the foundation of our lives as followers of God. In Romans chapter 5, verse 5, when we become Christians, Paul says that God pours out His love to us in our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's given to us. So that at the moment we become a Christian, we have the absolute capacity to supernaturally love others. Not because we can do it in our own power and strength as human beings, but because we are empowered by the Holy Spirit. We can do supernatural things through God. That's why Jesus can say to us, command us, love your enemies. God, how can I love my enemies? Not because I can do that, but because the Holy Spirit can enable me to do that when I'm yielding to Him. That's why in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, you don't have to take time to turn there. Fundamental. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but I do not have love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so that I could remove mountains, but do not have love, I'm nothing. If I give away everything I own and give over my body in order to boast, but do not have love, I receive no benefit. Love is patient. Love is kind. It is not envious. Love does not brag. It is not puffed up. It is not rude. It is not self-serving. It is not easily angered or resentful. It is not glad about injustice, but rejoices in the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. This kind of love never ends. And this is the kind of love that God calls us to. And we can only live at that level when we allow the Holy Spirit to work through our lives. But when we do, oh my goodness, then we can walk as Jesus walked. This is what God calls us to. And when we walk that way, we are certainly going to be in fellowship with God. We are certainly going to be on the same page with God. We are certainly going to be locked arm and arm with God. It is an old command. But notice back in 1 John 2, 8, he says, but on the other hand, I'm also writing a new command. And what he means by that is there's two Greek words for the word new. One is new in time. Speaking about the most recent. Like we would say, the the latest model of something. The other word for new is is talking about new in quality, new in character. And that's the word he uses here. He's not just saying that, that this new command is just the most recent thing coming down the pike. He's saying it's a whole different way of looking at things. Because now that God has come in the flesh, in the form of Jesus Christ... 
He has fleshed out for us on earth what it truly means to love other people as God does. That's why he says, notice in verse 8, I'm writing a new commandment to you which is true in him and in you. Because if we are in Christ, then it can be true in us as well through the power of the Holy Spirit. How is this love true in Christ? Well, again, we could take thousands of hours to talk about how Jesus loved. I mean, it, it was Jesus' love for sinners. That, that's why sinners flocked to Jesus, because they were the outcasts of society. The religious leaders didn't want anything to do with the tax collectors and sinners. But the tax collectors and sinners knew that Jesus loved them. Aren't you glad that Jesus loves sinners? I'm glad Jesus loved a sinner like me. That's the kind of love Jesus has that even loves outcasts. People that no one else wants anything to do with. And then again we talked about His disciples. How often they would disappoint Him and He still loved them to the very end. He even loved His enemies. He even loved the people who put Him on the cross. That when He was dying on the cross, He looked down and said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. That's love. That's the way Jesus loved. It was the kind of love that even the night that he was betrayed, the night when the disciples should have been supporting him, encouraging him before he faced the cross. No, it was that night that he got up from the Last Supper. He took a towel, he put it around his waist, and he knelt down and he washed his disciples' feet. That's love. And not only that, but what amazes me throughout my time, of, for the very first time I read it, is Jesus washed Judas's feet that night too. Can you imagine? Judas knowing what he was going to do in just a few hours. That he was going to go out for 30 pieces of silver and betray Jesus to the authorities. Kiss Jesus on the cheek in the garden where he was arrested. And that night, knowing what he was going to do, he saw Jesus, the Son of God, kneel in front of him and wash his feet. That's love. That's love. That kind of love can be true in us as well. If we'll just let God take over our lives and walk in light and walk in fellowship with Him. And folks, when we begin to love like that, there, there is such, again, a confirmation in our lives. Such a joy. Such, such a, an overwhelming blessing of God because of our obedience God knows what we're doing is not the easy thing always, but it's the right thing. It's the obedient thing, and He will bless us for it. That was true in Jesus. And when we love like God loves, we begin to see things differently. That's why notice in this verse, notice He talks about the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Because when you and I begin to allow the love of God to take over our lives. We begin to see God differently. We begin to see other people differently. We begin to see ourselves differently. When we love as God calls us to love, we will go through this life seeing things differently. But notice verse 9. Again, back to words. The one who says he's in the light, who's in fellowship with God, but still hates his fellow Christian is still in the darkness. And you'll notice here, isn't it very interesting that in verse 9, 10, and 11, he talks about just loving our, our fellow Christian. Wouldn't you think he would say just loving anybody? But God is making a very important point here. 
He says, if we're a Christian, if we're a child of His, and we can't love those that are our brothers and sisters in Christ who supposedly are on the same page spiritually with us, then there's no hope and chance that we're going to love others the way God loves them either. Because see, somehow we get this warped idea that, that our love is based on ignorance. Yeah, I love that person because I don't really know very much about them. Because the more I know about people, the less I love them. That's because we're loving at a natural level. See, God calls us to a supernatural level. That's why God is saying that the church and our fellow Christians are actually sort of the the test, if you will, of our love. Because it means that we can rub shoulders with people week in and week out at the mine on Tuesday, at church on Sunday, in Bible studies and fellowships and activities and stuff. And and the more we get to know them, sometimes they they just rub us the wrong way and they irritate us, whatever. But it's when we can still love them after we know everything about them or we're beginning to that puts our love from this level to God-like level, supernatural level, only produced through the power of the Holy Spirit. And that's why God calls us to do it. Anybody can love somebody or say, yeah, they're great when we don't know much about them, but the more we have to rub shoulders with them, the, the more we see their idiosyncrasies and their faults and their failures and everything, and we still love, that's Spirit-powered love. That's truly on the same page. And notice in verse 9, he says, the one who says he's in the light but still hates his fellow Christians still in the darkness. There's a lot of ways we could look at the word hate here to define it because I had even my wife say when she was studying this, she says, okay, I want to make sure. What, what's that mean? Here's, there's many different definitions we could use. I'm going to use this definition tonight. I think it's the closest to the original language. This word means that hate seeks no or leaves no room for reconciliation ever. That's what it means. It means we leave no room for reconciliation ever. No matter what the person does, no matter what they say, we have simply shut the door and said, I hate them. I'm done with them. I wash my hands of them. It doesn't matter what they do. It doesn't matter how many times they ask for my, for, for my forgiveness. If they come to me and they, they beg for forgiveness, whatever, I'm done. I've washed my hands. That is hate. Now, hate is also just being so consumed with them that we're filled with, with bitterness towards them and, and we can't stop thinking about ways to hurt them or, or seeing them hurting and things. Hey, there's other ways we could define hate. But for this word, it just sort of is leaves no room for reconciliation ever. Now sometimes, again, we can't go into this tonight. Reconciliation is based on some acknowledgement on their part and all that. I get that. But I'm just simply saying, as Jesus taught, that if someone does hurt us, and as Peter said, well, Lord, how many times should I forgive them? How many times should I let the door open if they come to me and acknowledge that they've hurt me? Should I reconcile? And Jesus says, yeah, every time. Because that's love. I mean, think about it. Would we feel comfortable night sitting here, even as a child of God, if we thought somehow that we could exhaust God's limit of love for us? That somehow His love for us was based on our performance, like many times our life is here on earth? That people like us and hang around us and all of this because of how we perform? God's love for us is unconditional. It's not based on performance. That I have no 
worry or anxiety at all because I know what the Bible says about my God that somehow Jeff Royce is going to get to a point in my life where I failed God so much that God says, sorry Jeff. It doesn't matter how many times you come back and say you're sorry. That's it. I'm done with you. I have washed my hands with you. God never does that with us. And God is calling us to be that with other people too. Sometimes we get burned loving that way. Yeah. Think about how many times God gets burned when He loves the world the way He does. In fact, how much more burn can we get than hanging on a cross because He loved those people so much? And yet that's the kind of love that God calls us to. That's why I notice as we wrap this up tonight, verse 10 says, the one who loves his fellow Christian though resides in the light. Man, we stay in the light. We're open to God. And there's no cause for stumbling in Him. And that word stumbling is an interesting word. It means trap. It was a word used by hunters. And there's an interesting thought here that that when you and I fill our lives with hate and bitterness, it's actually a trap for us. It actually traps us. That as much as we want others to hurt because of what they've done to us, we're the ones that end up trapped. But there's also the implication that because our lives can become filled with bitterness and hatred towards others, that we can be a stumbling block to others as well. And God is warning us against that. In fact, Jesus said in Matthew chapter 18, I know that stumbling blocks are going to be out there in the world, but woe to you if you're one of those stumbling blocks. It's one thing to take down our lives. It's another thing for God's perspective to take down somebody else's life because we're not living in God's light and living in His love. And notice the disorientation that takes place when we don't live a life of love. Verse 11, the one who hates his fellow Christian is in the dark. He walks in the dark. He doesn't even know where he's going. Far from that intentional stepping of knowing, of following in the footsteps of Jesus and walking closely behind my Savior and having the dust from His sandals washing up on my ankles and feet. I don't know where I'm going. I have no direction in my life. I have no clarity in my life. I'm just wandering around. There's no direction or aim or goal to my life at all. And that's when we know we're not walking in light. That's when we know we're not in fellowship with God. That's when we know we're not walking in His love. When we're wandering around like the children of Israel did for 40 years because of their unbelief. God wants our life to have purpose. And God simply says, if you come on the same page with me and you begin to obey me and you begin to live supernatural love life like the Spirit can produce in your life, you're going to see every step of the way right out there before you. I'm going to take you from point A to point B. And when you get to B, I'm going to take you to C. And there's going to be a very intentional, what's the next step? But I want to end tonight with this, folks. I want you to turn to the book of Ephesians. Hang in there. we got five minutes. I can do this. With God's help, I can do this. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 14. I think it all boils down to this, though. It really boils down to me coming to grips, grasping at some point in my walk with God just how much He loves me. 
Because I will never truly love others as God loves until I come to grips with how much God loves me. All of us as human beings want to be loved. All of us want to know somebody cares about us. All of us want to know that we're important to somebody. That, that somebody thinks about us. That's a desire of every human being. And God gets that. And that's why God said, if you will come and build a relationship with me and begin to walk in fellowship with me and lock arms in arms and walk in the light and walk as Jesus walked, you're going to begin to discover little by little just how much I love you. And it's going to set you free to love others. Notice Paul's prayer in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 14. For this reason I kneel before the Father from whom every family in heaven on earth is named. I pray that according to the wealth of His glory He may grant you to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in the inner person. That Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith so that because you've been rooted and grounded in love, notice, you may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and the height and the depth and thus to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge so that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. Here's what Paul's saying. Paul is saying that God wants us to come to a point where we can grasp, comprehend how much God loves us. To know the length, the breadth, the height, the depth of how much God loves us. That He's crazy about you. That He adores you. That you are important to Him. You are of such value to Him that that we couldn't understand it all. In fact, he's saying that, that we can sort of comprehend the incomprehensible to a point because his love for us is so infinite we'll never wrap our minds totally around it but we can enough notice at the end of verse 19 to be filled with all the fullness of god meaning this all of us have been created with a vacuum in our lives a vacuum that we seek to fill And if we don't seek to fill that vacuum with the love that God has for us, we will walk through our lives trying to fill that vacuum with all kinds of other people and other things. And and sometimes it can cause people crazy kind of behavior. Some people, in fact, draw attention to themselves simply because any attention is better than no attention. Like little children. And yet adults act the same way. When they've lived their life not coming to grips with how much God loves them, they seek to find attention even in negative ways. Because again, like all human beings, we want to be loved. We want to be important to somebody. We want to know somebody's thinking about us and caring about us. And God is simply saying, child, when you, when you begin to get into my word, when you begin to walk with me and fellowship with me and in my light, And you begin to come to grips with how much I love you. Because here's the other point that Paul is making here in Ephesians. It's not just enough to mentally grasp it. I've got to apprehend it and make it for me. It's not just pie in the sky, but oh yeah, I know God loves me and loves everybody. It's actually getting to the point where I appropriate that and apprehend that personally. That I can get up and say, God, I know you love me. And you love me just as much as you do anybody else in this world. And even if I was the only human being on this world, you would have died for me too. You love me that much. I mean, that's the level that Paul's talking about. And when we get to that level, folks, that void, that vacuum that needs to be filled because nature abhors a vacuum, that vacuum that needs to be filled and can only be filled by the love of God, will then be filled up. And folks, when Christians are filled up with the love of God, for them, 
then their lives can be lived overflowing to love others because that vacuum's been filled. They're not seeking to build relationships with others because somehow that person or that situation or that material thing that I buy is going to fill that vacuum. That vacuum has been filled by God's unconditional, sacrificial, eternal love for me. Nothing can ever take its place. I am filled, therefore I am overflowing my love to everybody else I come in contact with. And folks, when Christians begin to pray, this prayer that Paul prayed, praying for power, praying for stability, praying for the fullness of God, what could happen to a group of people like that? Let me show you in closing tonight, verse 20. Now to him who by the power that is working within us is able to do far beyond all that we ask or think, to him be the glory in the church. See, when, when Christians begin to grasp and apprehend and appropriate just how much God loves them, and then they are overflowed to love others in a way that only the Spirit can empower us to love. Folks, God can do things that's beyond our imagination. He, he, he can begin to work in ways that we could never dream, and it's going to bring glory to Him in His church. So here's a challenge. One more minute. What's that next step that God wants you to take right now in your life to walk as Jesus walked? And I would just like to throw out this challenge. Would any of you be willing for even a week, maybe even a month, or maybe even a year to pray the prayer of Paul from Ephesians 3.14 to 3.21 and see what happens in your life? I'm telling you one thing. You pray that prayer and mean it. God's going to begin to work in your life beyond what you could ever imagine. When you begin to plead for the power and the stability and the fullness of God to fill up your life like never before. Folks, I love you. I hope you know God loves you. I want to also leave you with this. Next week, I'm sort of designating it friend night at the mine. We have friend day on Sundays at Cornerstone. That's for evangelism. That's bringing our friends that don't know Jesus to this place so that they can hear the gospel about Jesus. But we also all have friends who love to study the Bible. And I'm not asking you to pull people from their church or anything else, but lots of people either here at Cornerstone, family and friends that you know, or people that go to other churches do not have a midweek Bible study like this. So here's what I'm asking my friends to do at the mine. Would this week... Would you maybe invite some friend, somebody to come with you next week for sort of a friend night at the mine where we can study the Bible together and see what it truly means to love as Jesus loves. Let's close in prayer. God, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for the way he loved us. And Lord, thank you for the assurance that we can love that way too if we'll just yield to the Holy Spirit of God. God, what's that next step you want us to take as we walk as Jesus walked? Help us to stay locked arm in arm with you this week. Help us to be on that page with you, God. Not looking at your commandments as something that weighs us down, something that burdens our lives. But Lord, we want to obey you because we love you. And because we know that everything you're telling us to do is for our own good and for our best. God, transform this group of people tonight. 
May all of us grab hold of this prayer tonight and begin to pray for your power in our lives, for that stability, for that fullness to flow out of us. And Lord, use our lives to truly make a lasting, eternal impact in the world in which we live. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Guys, I love you. Have a great week. See you next week.